Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 155, A Conversation with Tara Jones. Tara and I recorded this episode back in October at the end of Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Tara was diagnosed with stage four metastatic breast cancer at the age of 35, 12 years ago. And she currently remains NED, no evidence of disease. On today's episode, Tara shares her story. She talks about how she was initially thought to have stage two disease, but during the workup process was found that the cancer had spread to the liver. And she talks about the treatment that she underwent. And we talk about life in these last 12 years. We talk a lot about the fertility decisions that she had had to make. She had recently gotten married before being diagnosed. And she talks about how she made certain choices when it came to thinking about fertility. We had recently gotten married and shares how she had a miscarriage two months prior to her diagnosis and the choices that she made surrounding her diagnosis and fertility and what that has meant for her future. As we very often talk about in this podcast, living with and beyond cancer is so much more than the actual treatment someone receives. And we really get into that today. And with that, it is my honor to welcome Tara Jones to the Interlude podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Tara, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Can you start by telling us a little bit about who you are, your story? My name is Tara Jones. I am 47 years old. I was diagnosed with uh, stage four metastatic breast cancer at the age of 35. So it's been 12 years. Um, Initially, I was diagnosed at stage 2B um, or 2A and did a normal protocol which was a chest MRI. And during the chest MRI found a abnormal grouping of blood cells at the top of my liver. Um, Shortly thereafter had a biopsy and it was found that the cancer had traveled to, from my breast to my liver. Um, And then I had a lumpectomy to remove the breast lump went through two different cocktails of chemotherapy between November of 2011 and February of 2012, then had a liver resection to remove uh, the tumor that had decreased in size thanks to the chemotherapy, and then went through some radiation and then a year of tamoxifen. Uh, I was less than a year married when I was diagnosed. Um, my husband was working overseas and came home to, of course, take care of me. And so it was a pretty difficult time. 
um, to go from what you thought would be, oh, we'll remove the tumor, maybe just have surgery, uh, and quickly went into, you know, you're going to need chemotherapy and radiation and, you know, all that comes with that, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the, the current treatments that we have for these diseases. I mean, that's a lot to go at, at 35, newly married, to find all that out. Can you talk a little bit about what your mental health was at that point? What was going through your mind? Um, I think what was going through my mind, one, was that I was afraid that my husband would leave me. <laughs> uh, we were newly married. This was not the in sickness that he signed up for or that we had planned for, obviously. It was not either of our first rodeos with cancer. He lost his mom to cancer. And I had two parents who fortunately or unfortunately had been through it prior to me. And so we knew what was all involved with it which was good, but also you become a patient. And as everybody says, you lose a lot of cognitive abilities uh, going to appointments. It's just a lot to take in. And I think at the forefront of our minds was the fact that we were going to lose the opportunity to have a family. We were already marrying later. I don't know if it's later in life, but um, at an older age that, you know, would put it us at risk. Uh, two months prior to my diagnosis, I had had a miscarriage. And so we knew it was possible to get pregnant. And we were anxious that once he returned, we would try again. Um, but I think that was the scariest part was, you know, we didn't know what to expect. A lot of information was coming at us all at once. I, I got very physically upset when I found out what had happened, that this had traveled to my liver. I was not violent, but I threw a, a stool across the apartment. I was angry. I was upset. This wasn't supposed to happen to me. I didn't do anything wrong. I took care of myself. I was only 35. And yes, I had the example of my mom who was diagnosed in her 40s, but this wasn't supposed to happen. I, I was probably pretty much a shell of myself for a few months, just trying to get through, okay, what do we need to do? And a lot of people offering to help, which was terrific. Um, there are some things that I would probably go back and do differently, but, you know, I really was just not, I don't think either of us were really mentally prepared for it. And I think not until we were at the end, the following summer, did I actually feel like, oh gosh, this is really something that I went through. I think I was just trying to do whatever I was supposed to do to stay alive. Um, I was angry and would get upset when people would call me a survivor or a hero or you're, you're fabulous or this, that, and the other. I'm losing my hair. I don't feel fabulous. It's itching me at Thanksgiving to the point where I was like, I need to shave it off. I didn't feel like I was doing anything special. I was just trying to survive. And I think, you know, all the things that people try to do to help can also not really be what you need in that moment. Um, and so a lot of what, you know, I went through, I have shared with other people that, you know, you, you don't need to thank everybody. You don't need to be there for anybody but yourself. You don't deserve, you don't need to be taking care of anything than what you can handle in that day. 
And I think for me, that was the takeaway. I was trying to mentally absorb too much all at once. And when I looked back on it, I thought if I could share anything with other people, it was just, just focus on one step every day, have somebody by your side, whether it's a spouse, a friend, a parent, a sister, uh, you know, some significant other that can um, support you because it, it is a lot. And I think I was angry. I was sad for what the future was going to hold. I was scared. I didn't know what to expect. Um, and I was nervous. And I think, you know, all of that is normal, but nobody thinks that that's how they're supposed to feel. Everybody thinks they're supposed to feel grateful that you have therapies at your disposal. There are ways to survive. And um, I don't think it's till years later that you realize that that's true, but that's not what you need in that time and in that time frame in which you're trying to just keep one foot in front of the other and trying to get out of bed every morning. How did you navigate those feelings of the anger and the grief and denial and, and everything that you're feeling to maybe a little bit closer, not to, I mean, to acceptance or to, all right, well, this is where we are right now. It's taken a lot of years. I cried a lot. Um, sometimes you just feel so sick and worn out. You're just kind of mentally checked out. <laughs> um, you know, I exercised a lot. I had a lot of support for people who wouldn't just let me sit around. Um, people who were getting me into acupuncture and massage. And, you know, I was diagnosed at a time in which, in my opinion, I felt like, you know, yes, you have modern medicine, but it was just then becoming more acceptable to include other forms of therapy. And, um, you know, medicinal marijuana was becoming legal in Colorado, which is where I lived at the time. I did not do it. Um, I would go back and probably do it again if I could to alleviate some of the symptoms. But I was doing massage. I was going to acupuncture. I was doing anything I could do to physically make myself feel better get these chemicals through my body, make them do what they had to do, and then, you know, move on so I could start to heal for the next round. I was doing chemotherapy every other week between November of 2011 and February. Um, so I was trying to do a lot of the things that people would do in any situation in which they were challenged by their mental health. Um, anything I could do to make myself feel better. You know, I got a wig, which made me feel better about going out. That was something personally that made me feel a little bit better, that I felt more together when I was going out in public for special situations. Um, I think, you know, any kind of holistic care, whether it's working out, going for a walk, doing acupuncture, doing massage, um, I kept up on all of those things to just help my body process everything and give me some downtime too. It was time that I would have to close my eyes and not be dealing with something that was making me feel sick. It was something that was making me feel better. And I think it helped me physically and mentally to keep up some of those things that I was doing pre my diagnosis and then incorporate new things. 
Um, and having people who would support me in those, you know, my husband would take me to the gym. My mom would take me for walks. Um, just having people to talk to on a regular basis who also understood my parents being the forefront of, you know, yeah, you are going to feel sick. Here's what's going to help you. Um, I didn't really feel, I'm not a support group kind of a person. You know, the, the cancer center where I was treated was great. They did bring in a lot of those resources um, to make them known and be available for me um, as any patient there. But it really wasn't my thing. I felt like I had a, a strong enough group of people to rely on and to talk to. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's not what's right, not right for somebody else. So, you know, I encourage a lot of people to not just crawl up into a ball and stay in bed and, and think that that's what's going to make you better. You know, I think living as much of an active lifestyle and doing as much of the normal things um, is what kind of kept me uh, mentally stable. You know, I, it was around the holidays. So it was Christmas and I love Christmas and it was still going to parade of lights, even though it was probably 20 or 30 degrees and just bundling up a little bit more because I had a bald head um, and dealing and doing some of the things that I would normally do and keeping somewhat of a regular schedule, but also knowing that I had to listen to my body more than I had listened to it before and knowing what my limitations were and not apologizing to anybody for not being able to do something or for canceling plans at the last minute. So I think it was a balance of keeping a normal life, but also incorporating other things that would help me physically. And probably now that I think about it more mentally than maybe even I realized at the time. And I, I agree. You, you have to be a little bit selfish, you know, and, and women especially take care of everyone else around them. Yes. And it's hard to kind of shift that focus towards yourself. But yes. You need it. Yep. It's absolutely. It's hard to have somebody wait on you, yeah. uh, take care of meals for you, to have friends come and drop things off. I think the other thing was also feeling selfish. And I, I mean, there were people saying thank you on my behalf and I didn't feel compelled and I didn't feel like I needed to at the time do anything. People knew that just by helping, that was what was most needed for us at the time. Um, you know, I had a great support system at work. Uh, the people that I surround myself with, and of course, my family. So I know everybody is not as fortunate. I would sit there receiving my chemotherapy and listen and hear women and men who had to deal with public transportation getting to and from treatments. And that wasn't something I ever had to deal with. Mm -hmm. So I know in that sense, I was very fortunate. But I know that now there is a lot more embracing of different types of therapies to help people deal with the side effects and deal with the symptoms and deal with the mental health that even has been advanced in the 12 years since I went through all of this. You know, as you were talking, one of the things that, you know, we know this is true, but always kind of jumps out at me, like, you know, when you're diagnosed and your life has changed completely, the world keeps moving and things still happen and the garbage still has to get taken out and the dishes still have to be washed. And how do you navigate that big monumentous personal change with all of the mundane that's still going on in the world? I think some of it keeps you focused and makes you feel like there's some sense of normalcy. 
I kept working. I didn't take any time off. For me, I'm a meeting and events planner. I actually work for a medical device company now and have been, um, along with having just been newly married, I was with my company for less than a year when I was diagnosed as well. But I had a great management team um, and support team, and I kept doing my job, which was planning our participation in trade shows and sales meetings. And that was what made me feel normal. Um, and that was my day to day. But it also gave me something to do to keep my mind off of what was going on with me in this other part of my life and made me feel somewhat normal. I think there's going to be days where certainly you don't, I, I can't go do this. I don't want to go do it. And don't force yourself to do something you don't want to do. Again, going back to being selfish. It is all about you. <laughs> I did not ever take for granted that this was what I was going through. I have all these lovely people around me, but this was affecting me. And I was the only one who knew how I was feeling that day, mentally, physically. I knew what I could tolerate. It might have taken me a couple of months to get there. Um, and for a lot of people, this isn't you know, a sprint. And it's a marathon, which I know you're doing. So you get the <laughs> It's coming up for you soon. Yes. <laughs> um, so that's very exciting. Um, so it is something that it may take a little bit of a stumble to get through. But, you know, once you know how you're going to react to these treatments, regardless of what they are, whether it's chemotherapy that has more physical reaction, the radiation that has more cumulative reactions where you start to feel tired the more that you go, you kind of know what your limits are going to be and what you can do. And I welcomed the normal things. I had a brand new niece at the time uh, who was born a uh, week before I was diagnosed. So uh, my sister-in-law, my the baby were still in Colorado. So those were things that made me happy was to spend time with her, uh, spend time with my parents and to do as much normal things as possible so that my mind couldn't go to darker places, which is what I, you know, the sadness that I felt. Um, some of that would come later on and it would stay with me for many years after I was done with treatment um, because I was just probably even more so angry then about the lasting side effects that my treatment had for me. Um, but I think give yourself some grace and time. It's not one, it's not great. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It sucks. <laughs> All of it is terrible. I wish I work for a company that um, is very closely tied with helping patients with blood cancers. And I hope someday that we can do more with solid tumor cancers such as they're doing now with immunotherapy to eliminate things like chemotherapy. Cause for me, it ruined my chances of having a family. We tried alternate ways. It didn't work. And it's probably been nine to 10 years that it's taken me to get to where I am now, which is accepting of what my life is. I'm grateful for it, but it still had a lasting effect on me that I'll probably carry with for the rest of my life. Can you talk a little bit about, the fertility struggles? So, um, you know, one of the things that a lot of people came at me with and keep in mind, Preston, my husband was still overseas the first whole month that I was 
going through doctors and figuring out where I was going to be and what I needed to do. He wasn't with me. Fortunately, my parents were, and they were terrific. But, um, you know, I had a lot of people coming at me about freezing eggs and doing this. And my cancers were ER and PR positive. There wasn't really, um, and it was very slow growing, but I didn't know what to do. I just wanted it out. I just wanted to get started. And so I didn't do what I could have to give us a chance of having a family. Um, at the time, you know, there were different studies that were currently ongoing about um, a drug that would essentially protect your ovaries and protect your eggs. But right as I was starting therapy, there was a study that came out showing that that treatment could also hide cancer cells and therefore my chemotherapy could be irrelevant. It could not work in the way we needed it to work because of this. So I chose to not do anything and hope for the best. Um, it all happened so quickly. I didn't freeze any eggs. Maybe it would have been an option. Maybe it wouldn't. I know there's different non, um, hormone ways of achieving eggs now. Um, and so I was hopeful that my body would recover in that way. And I did a year of tamoxifen after I was all done. So in 2013, I was free of any treatments. I felt like my body had recovered at that point from the chemotherapy and the radiation. Um, not to say there's not longer lasting effects. Um, and I went to a fertility specialist and they told me I had nothing left. Um, which was terrible, especially knowing that I had gotten pregnant. Now, I don't know what my life would have looked like as somebody who was pregnant. And then I would have eventually been diagnosed. I could have been pregnant while dealing with all of this. I don't know what my life would have looked like. Um, so my husband and I chose a couple of years later to try surrogacy with donor eggs and we tried three transfers and none of them took. We thought about adoption, you know, at the time we had a lot of financial struggles. He was in and out of work because he had left his job and come back mm -hmm. to the States. And so I was the primary um, employee at the time. So there was just a lot of factors that went into it. And I think it wasn't until maybe four or five years ago, we moved, um, he took a new job. We left Colorado, we moved to Missouri. And I think it was at that point that I kind of quietly in my mind, just, it wasn't any big monumental day or thing that occurred that I realized that, okay, that wasn't going to be what our path was going to be. And it's hard because I'm the I'm oldest of five siblings. I have three, uh, two sisters and two brothers, and they all have children. They all have two. And I see the joy my mom and dad have with them and their children. My husband's one of three. Both of his brothers have kids as well. We're surrounded by family and friends, extended friends that have children. Um, so we have a lot of little people in our lives. There's not a lot of solace for me. And I mean, I'm an exceptional aunt. I will give, I will say that, you know, my sister will listen to it. I hope she agrees, but I'm an exceptional aunt. That would have been regardless, irregardless of if I had my own kids or not. Um, but that was a hard one because I only ever envisioned myself 
you know, when people would say, what did you want to be when you grew up? I said, I just wanted to be a mom. And that was the hardest thing was letting go of that. It was hard for both of us, both my husband and I. It's still a hard Mother's Day. It's hard. Father's Day. It's hard. Um, we try to get through it the best we can, but I think there'll always be a, a little hole. And we always think about, you know, our the baby that never was because we had this like small little window and it happened and then just something else took over and maybe it was a sign um, because a month later, like I said, that was in July and a month later I was diagnosed for the first time. Um, you know, we're grateful for the opportunity that we had to try, but some things just don't work out. I hate the saying it is what it is. So I don't ever use that. I just say that it just didn't work out. And I love that you aren't coming at it with this positive attitude, you know, because I think a lot of people, (laughs) well, it wasn't meant to be. And they they try to put a positive spin on it. And I I think it's really important to not put a positive spin on things that are really hard and terrible. Yeah, I, I think that of being diagnosed with breast cancer at 35. And I think about that at being my opportunity for having children being taken away from me. I think even if we had gone to forward with adoption, you know, the, the thing is, is that I look at my siblings' children and I see them in that. And that was a hard thing to kind of get over when we were going down this path. You know, it would be part of my husband, but not part of me. But do I want to be a mom enough that that's okay? Um, I, I didn't ever put a positive spin on being sick or not being able to have children. I don't feel like this time of year, I need to be overly happy and excited that it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Personally, I feel like we've moved past the awareness. Like, let's actually do things to help fund research because that's what's going to get us where we need to be and fund the patients that need more and better treatments. Um, I'm also, I also realize I'm an anomaly. I don't know what your experience is, but in talking with like my, I, I recently changed oncologist. Mine moved out of Colorado, so I don't get to see her when I go back. But I'm like, I realize I'm an anomaly. I'm a metastatic breast cancer survivor who's been, had no evidence of disease for 12 years, who's essentially a healthy person. Um, I, I know, and I read the stories, and I know that's not the case for a lot of women and men in my situation. Um, it didn't spread through my lymph nodes. It spread through my blood, essentially. Um, I don't know if that, you know, helps me. I am scared of it coming back. That's also something is, I think the lasting effects is you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. So, you know, it's not like I have this epiphany and I'm like, okay, this is my life. It's my husband and I, Yes, we have these wonderful children in our lives. Okay. Life goes on and everything is great. I mean, it's still a mental battle, I think, every day. Some days I just feel it more than others. And I think I'm waiting for when is the year that I'm going to go in and it's going to be either a reoccurrence or something else is going to have happened. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's a lot I can do to help prevent that. But I also know that there's a lot of environmental things or things that maybe genetically we don't know yet that are just part of my DNA. And so 
I try to be optimistic and help people. I recently had a friend who was just diagnosed. Um, I don't know if she's going to have to go through chemotherapy yet. Um, but I, I told her, I said, I'm going to be your biggest cheerleader, but I'm not going to be the person who's going to spin everything and make it all sound like it's going to be all hunky dory at the end. Cause it's going to suck going through it. Mm-hmm. There's some opportunities, you know, to take some nuggets and take those with you as you go through life. Um, But I'm just going to tell you, based on my experiences, what you need to be doing right now to help yourself. And it may not always be the things that everybody else is going to tell you, which is you're going to be so fine. You're going to do great. There isn't anything that you can't do. You know, there's going to be setbacks and it's going to be a hard road. And what does treatment look like now? Are you on any treatment or what's the monitoring or surveillance that you do? Um, so I currently go once a year, mostly because for myself. So I have an annual exam with a gynecologist every year. Um, I do self breast exams. I talk to my husband, you know, let's be real. Like some of your best detectors can be your spouse or significant Mm -hmm. other. If you ever feel anything weird, you need to tell me, I may not find it, but maybe you, you might. Um, and so I also go to an oncologist up in Kansas city once a year that I see, I have my myomogram there. They do uh, blood work to make sure that my liver enzymes are in a normal range. And I think that's for my own mental health. I know that I could maybe not have to go as often, um, but for me, it's peace of mind and it's more people touching my breasts every year, which is not a bad thing. Um, I did find mine myself. And so I know how important the self-breast examinations are. Um, even if you think it's something minor, it's worth getting checked out. I thought mine might have been a muscle pull from doing an exercise because mine was farther in on my chest. Um, so I go once a year and get all the tests done and just make sure everything's healthy. The thing I get most concerned about is what I can't see, which is the liver. And, you know, of course now insurance thinks I'm less likely uh, or at a lower risk than a higher risk. So really we depend on those liver enzyme tests and, and if there's any kind of spike or abnormal, add more, add anything abnormal. Um, then my oncologist will submit for an ultrasound so we can really see. But everything has been healing. Nothing has looked abnormal. Um, and, you know, I think about, do I need to do something more? I sometimes think about just having a mastectomy. I was young. The tumor in my breast was small, so I didn't have anything more than a lumpectomy. So some that kind of stuff weighs on my mind and I think about it and have conversations and, you know, I know that there's treatments always out there. And um, so I just kind of take it year by year. And the, the um, you know, you said there were some findings in the liver when you were originally diagnosed. Did they ever have to do any kind of treatment to the liver or the chemotherapy and the tamoxifen addressed it? The chemotherapy addressed it by shrinking it. And then we did, they did a liver resection before I went into radiation. So they were able to remove it. And because it's my liver, it, the portion that was cut out has grown back. 
it doesn't look abnormal in any way. Uh, none of the tests, the follow-up scans in these the years since that has happened have shown anything abnormal. Um, I'm very diligent about it, though, and making sure that, okay, these are the tests that you're taking, right? Like, we're going to, this is the range I'm supposed to be in, you know? Um, there's been some concerns in the past when I've gotten blood drawn that the blood was a little bit off, but so far so good. I stay in touch with my original oncologist. Um, she and I are about the same age. And so it's been great to have a resource and somebody who, even though we don't clinically see each other, I share the wins of every year of, Hey, everything looked great. Or, you know, my mom was diagnosed again two and a half years ago with triple negative breast cancer this time, um, sharing that with her, having conversations with my sisters um, and my family about, you know, their struggles, having all of us been past this a little bit more. So it's, it's always ongoing. It's always in the back of my head. The clinical stuff is the stuff that just makes us all feel a little bit better, but there's always something there that's kind of um, weighing on me about it. Uh, I think people are a little surprised when I tell them I know this will probably kill me someday. This may be the thing. I could get hit going home tomorrow or today, but um, maybe that's the acceptance of knowing that it could come back or that it will likely come back. And I, I think that's exactly it, that there, you did... You, you know, you didn't do anything to cause this and you did all the right things. From a scientific perspective, there's so much that we don't understand about cancer. We don't right. understand why it, it comes back in people who did all the treatment and yep. why it sometimes doesn't come back. And, you know, I think that's where the current research really is, is trying to figure out you know, can we identify a recurrence early? Can we better identify, you know, who's at risk for a recurrence? And can we prevent that? Or can we modify that? You know, if we know, or we're picking up some early signals of recurrence, can we switch the treatment so that it doesn't show up on a scan? Um, and that's, I think, one of the hardest parts for everyone to, to navigate is you have that original treatment, and you do yeah. all the things you're supposed to do, you're left with the side effects and then what? And I think also I try to do as much as I can along with my mom, my sisters on educating other people. I mean, I, my reach is not far, <laughs> you know, it's not like I have millions or even thousands of viewers on Instagram or Facebook, but it's educating my own circle of family and friends on, you know, here's the things that are going to help research and push forward any kind of uh, treatments and better therapies, um, you know, better tools, better ways of diagnosing earlier, because of course, early detection is what is going to save lives, whether that be me feeling it myself, um, you know, doing something like a bilateral mastectomy, because you know that you even have a 1% chance, um, you know, tools, different kinds of medical equipment, you know, I, I, the, especially this month and having tomorrow be the final day of October, you know, I think I learned, I, I was all about the pink. I love pink. Um, I have a brand new car and the inside lights are pink, <laughs> but I realized that 
there was a lot that I didn't even realize wasn't going towards the people who need it, the patients who need services that can drive them home to and from home to their therapy, to their doctor's visits. Um, and so it's just helping even just educate my little small circle on what they can do if they're looking for something to do is what I feel like is kind of my mission now. So I don't feel the guilt, but I also feel a sense of properly educating people, pushing the right information out about what people can do if they are diagnosed, sharing my experience with people who ask um, or who want it that I know because I did go through it as an early age. And I only realize now that I'm in my mid forties and I'm going to probably encounter a lot more people, a lot more women who are going to be diagnosed in the years to come. And what can the experiences for me and my family help other people to do, whether it's small little just nuggets of information, you know, getting them a mastectomy pillow or telling them that zip ups are going to be better after surgery than pulling something over your head or making sure that you let the medication do its work um, before you start telling somebody that, no, I feel this pain in my shoulder and, you know, it, you're just kind of not feeling great. And also asking, you know, what questions do did I ask or that I wish I asked mm-hmm. my caregivers, my clinicians, my team that was caring for me. So I think I've taken a sense of purpose of helping give that forward and, and it's, there's been more than, unfortunately, I can count on two hands, the number of women I have known in the past 12 years since I was diagnosed that I've had these conversations with. So I feel like that's what I hope to do moving forward um, and also pushing people in the right direction when they want to give monetarily. You know, the pink kitchenaid is really cute. Um, But it does little to actually help patients or help patient services or caregivers. Because I think, you know, the other piece of all of this is what this does for people who are caring for people who are ill long term. And, you know, fortunately for me, um, there hasn't been, I, I haven't needed ongoing treatment. I can't imagine what that would be like on a family. And so... Those are the types of services also that we need to elevate for these families, for the friends, for the spouses, um, the partners who are there standing by waiting to do whatever they can do to help. That's such an important point. You know, it is the end of October and everything is pink and you can buy whatever pink thing you want. And sadly, people think that they, they don't, no, right. You see a pink thing, you see a pink ribbon on it. And people think that they're supporting breast cancer research where very often they're not very often companies are using the pink ribbon to market and to promote yep. their products, or they're maybe donating, I don't know, a dollar to some organization. So I, I think research is absolutely number one, knowing where your money is going. But like you said, the other part of it is supporting patients and caregivers, because there's a lot of hidden costs in cancer care, not just breast cancer, um, things like transportation and parking and meal delivery services if you can't cook and what if you can't do laundry, I mean, the childcare, you know, the costs really add up a lot. Yeah, and and that was something that we experienced. I mean, we did have some financial hardships. It did 
not make our life easy. It's one of the reasons we left Colorado was it became very unaffordable for us. Um, you know, what we had gone through kind of did not add to that. So I, I want to see a lot more happen for the folks and these women who are diagnosed at later stages. Um, because I feel like chemotherapy isn't the only, I know it's the best option we have. Um, it's not the, I hope the, the only option. And I do look and see, I did watch the PBS special number of years ago, and you do see how far we've come from, you know, the days of butchering women's chests mm -hmm. to remove the cancer and just scarring these women for life. And I know that I'm fortunate enough to have been diagnosed in an era in which there were other advanced therapies available. Um, I hope that people understand that there are the correct ways to make sure that what you want to, what you're hoping you're helping is going towards the right thing. And so that's what I try to educate. And there's a lot of people who just don't know. They look at the tag, like you said, and it's a percentage of whatever. And it's like 1%. Okay. Well that costs a dollar. So 1% of that is nothing. Yeah. You know, what do you think that's going to help? But it's really, you know, promoting the services, the research to make these treatments better, to make them more affordable to help. We did benefit also from a grant. There are a lot of organizations out there that want to help patients. And you just, either you have to do it yourself or you task somebody. If somebody wants to help you, say, go out there and help me. Help me find a grant for a young survivor to help me get my groceries, to maybe pay my rent, to pay my car. You know, I took advantage of one, um, can't remember it off the top of my head, but there are a lot of smaller organizations that are looking for patients in, you know, certain situations to help them. It's, it's great that the American Cancer Society and the Breast Cancer Foundation and some of these larger organizations do a lot of that. Um, the Young Survivor Coalition does a lot as well. And they're an organization, Bright Pink does a lot as well. But there's also things within your own state that are set up to help. So there is a lot of um, help out there for patients, for them, their families, to help support the financial piece of it. There's a lot of services out there for patients and caregivers. Like I said, I wasn't a, a support group kind of a person, but some people are. And if you don't have somebody within your small circle, it can be really beneficial even just joining a Facebook group. That's who I joined. Um, it was people that I could go to that were in a similar situation as me with regards to my age and say, you know, everybody's body is different. And, and make sure that you realize that that's the way somebody reacted is not going to be the way that I'm going to react. But it's good to know what you could expect. And that was a beneficial help to me was even just talking with women from all over the world, even if it was just an online relationship. And, and that's an age we're in now that you have all these resources above and beyond what was available even 12 years ago to lean on people and share experiences so that maybe you can have a little bit more information and a little bit more knowledge of what you're getting yourself into 
even if it doesn't react in that way, or it does, you are like, wow, thank goodness I had those ginger chews. It totally helped settle my stomach. Thank goodness I had the hard candy when they put my IV in and did the IV flush so I didn't feel the saline. It's just little things like that, that are just, there's so much information and so many resources out there um, to help people. But I hope people also realize that there's also the right way to donate and fund. And if that's how you want to help, make sure you do the research. There's plenty of information online that will show how much of what the organization raises goes towards various services, whether it's research, patient services, uh, caregiver services, local community, um, all of that is public information. So I think the knowledge is what's most powerful and there's so much of it. Um, just be careful where you're getting your information from to make sure it's the right information. <laughs> uh, you said a lot of really wonderful <laughs> things. Um, and I just want to piggyback on one thing that you said was tasking someone for help. And this is huge, you know, asking, delegating help. Um, you know, I always tell people, and I'm curious to see your take on it. You know, I, I think I sometimes do these posts of like, you know, what not to say to someone with cancer. And one of the things I always, you know, don't say, well, let me know how I can help, because I think that puts the burden on the person going through the treatment. Um, and I then tell my patients and their family members or their, whoever their support system is, is if people do want to help give them, con you know, sometimes giving them concrete tasks, yeah. you know, can be very helpful. So what was, what's been your take on that or what's your perspective? I think 100%. I never went to a doctor's appointment without taking somebody with me. Um, I think it's completely true that you only hear maybe 10% of what anybody is telling you in those appointments. Have somebody taking notes. Think about your questions in advance. I think that's one. And people are willing to do that. You know, there are people who don't cook. They don't bake. They don't sew. Um, they can't afford time in other ways. And there's probably people, I know there's people in my life who are 100% up to being a note taker, going online and researching, um, you know, going on Amazon and finding the cookbook that helps you with, this is what you should eat pre your treatments. This is what you should eat the day after. Here's what happens if you get sores in your mouth. You know, there's all that. And I've become that person. You know, I, I send all that information out to anybody I know that's willing to accept it when they're sick. And I think you're right. It's not saying, well, what can I do? But just saying, you got a task for me, give it to me. If you're a person who likes research, you're a person who is on the internet every day or can easily like start to work through things, then say, uh, offer that up. You know, if you need somebody to help with scheduling, there's so many scheduling apps, somebody can easily help get everything set up for you. Um, but I think absolutely, if there's anything or anybody in your life that you know is a taskmaster, that is a check it off the list, get it done kind of a person, ask them to do it. People want to help and some people just don't know how to. They don't know how to offer um, and I think the other thing that I share with a lot of women, um, since I don't know any men who have had breast cancer is you're going to really have friends who are going to shine and you're going to have friends who just fade away. 
I think that happens naturally through life where you break up with friends. I think the saying you have friends for a reason, a season and a lifetime is true. Um, there's going to be people who are going to step up and there's going to be people who are going to possibly fade into the background that are either going to become uncomfortable or they're just, you're just going to lose touch with them. And it's really not on you to try to keep relationships going. It's not on you to update everybody with how you're doing every minute of every day. It needs to be two way. And, and in this case, it needs to be more on the people who are, are saying that they're going to be there for you to make sure that you're okay, that you are getting what you need to. Um, so I think it, it's not just the cooking, the baking, um, you know, the knitting of hats, which I'm so grateful for. I still have all of mine that people gave me, that people knitted for me. Um, they're little pieces of things that I just can't give away. But there's also, you know, ancillary things that you just don't think about, you know, in this day and age, send somebody to go get your groceries, go pick them up. You can task anybody to do it. Target will let you assign it to somebody else. You know, you can put your order somewhere and have somebody else go get it for you. There are people that want to help and sometimes they feel helpless or they feel like they're not doing enough. So the worst thing that they're going to say is, no, I'm not able to, or they're going to say, you know, you just tell me when and where to be and I will do it. So I, I think that you have to lean on those people. Um, you know, not everybody lives in an area where their family, immediate family is there. There's a lot people can do remotely. Um, and there's a lot of people that want to help you right in your immediate area. And all you have to do is ask. So hopeful. Uh, I feel like we could talk forever. Uh, <laughs> so much, so much information to share. Uh, before we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to, that you think is important? I think we touched on a lot of what I share out with people probably more often than I wish I had to. Um, I think, you know, the one thing is, is being easy on yourself. We talked about it. You didn't do anything to get yourself here. And it's an unfortunate set of circumstances. I think it's also realizing um, what I hope starts to happen in medical care. And I see it with you and I see it with my oncologist is really that more personalized medicine. One size doesn't fit all. Um, I think that was something I learned a lot about, which was what was going to be best for me, which was going to be best for my situation. And I think also put a lot of thought into who you select as a caregiver in the medical sense, because I wanted to find somebody who was going to walk with me through this journey, not just my husband, my family, my friends but who were going to be the doctors who were going to be, you know, just confident enough that, you know, they were willing to try maybe some things outside the box or be a little bit more forthright and not sugarcoat things and find somebody who's going to be a partner. You know, I left a doctor at a prestigious, um, healthcare system when I lived in Colorado because I walked out of there crying and I thought this isn't the person for me. They may be prestigious, but there's a lot of other qualified physicians out there who could give me the same care. And I came across Dr. Sarah Conlin, um, who has become a friend and 
she was a partner. She would share with me the good, the bad, the positive. But at the end of the day and at the end of every visit, it was, what else can I do for you? What else can I do to make your life easier? Because I know it's not right now. And that still happens when I go to my oncologist to this day. Sometimes it's, can you give me something to sleep? Because one of the great things that I got was I went through menopause twice. So, yeah. So that's a whole nother topic probably. For <laughs> yes, another time. That's one with me and my sister because of some of what she's working on um, with post postmenopausal women. But, um, you know, it, it's being honest and being able to share that and finding somebody who you feel comfortable with and somebody who's going to be there to service you because that is what I felt was the role of my oncologist. And I, I think you know, we get swept up in who's got degrees from here and who's doing research and who's doing this. And there's so many great physicians and clinicians out there that, you know, you don't have to be pushed into one direction if you don't feel comfortable. Um, because this, this is going to be a very long relationship that you're going to have. It could be longer than some friendships. It could be longer than some marriages. Um, and you really want to find somebody who's going to do right by you and um, be a partner and not somebody who's just going to tell you what to do. That doesn't make anybody feel like they have a lot of control in their life when they're told what to do. You know, having someone who walks with you, you know, I, I think I always tell people, you know, when we see the good scans and the good results, we love them. And making those calls with the scans aren't good or the results aren't good. Those are some, you know, the hardest things ever. And I have always said that the day that we, that I don't feel it, you know, that I'm, that I don't feel devastated by those news is the day that I should stop doing this because it really, you know, you're, you're walking along this journey. Um, and I, and I think what you said about it is, it isn't, you're absolutely right. It's not about necessarily the degrees and where someone works is a lot of people choose to work in areas that make sense for their life. Um, or that I, need it. You yeah. know, not everybody needs to be, you know, at the prestigious healthcare institutions. You know, there's a lot of people that, you know, doctors, I think that are meant for research and that's great that that's what they do. Yeah, yeah. But there are some that just need to practice and go even where the patients are. And I live in a more rural part of the country now. Um, I choose to go to Kansas City for my treatment. Um, and it's not because I don't feel like there's not qualified clinicians here. I just feel like my case is such that it's not enough experience here, um, in, in Southwest Missouri, having young patients, young women, such as myself having been diagnosed. So I, and you have that, you know, you can go anywhere, uh, if you're living in an area, but also know that there's, you know, seek out people too. Cause I, I know there's good clinicians and physicians everywhere, but also if you have your plethora of choices, you don't have to choose somebody who's, you know, at the forefront of everything to get good care, to get a good partner, to get somebody who's like you said, going to walk with you and not, you know, pull what some doctors do and well, this is what you need to do. There is no other option. It's either well, this, you know, you're going to die. It's very like. And, and I think 
you know, your treatment now I think is, is much more standard of care, but 12 years ago was, you know, that was outside the box a little bit. Um, and it was incredible, but there are a lot of people who even now I think wouldn't have necessarily done that. And my mom, when she was diagnosed, I think, I can't remember if it was the first or second time that was, you know, treating the tumors with chemotherapy before surgery was something that was just, what, what do you mean? You know, it can shrink it. You know, we want to kill all those cells, but also it can shrink the tumor so that perhaps it's a less invasive. And what that allowed for me was I had a surgical oncologist who said, listen, I booked the OR for the length of time it would take for me to open you up. But you know, I have a pretty good feeling today that I can get that laparoscopically because you're not going to know what happened until you came out. And he had just enough confidence, arrogance, whatever you want to call it. I loved him that he was able to do that liver resection without having to open me up. He knew that he could get at it. And you want people who are going to push the envelope maybe a little bit, but that are always going to try for the best possible outcome for you. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's just, I think sums it up that you're pushing, but staying safe. And at the end of, and at the center of all of it is you as the patient. Yeah. And that's huge. Absolutely. Where can listeners find you to connect with you? I am swites76 on Instagram or Tara Switzer Jones on Facebook. Um, if anybody wants to reach out and just has questions, I, you know, my mom and I wrote a girlfriend's guide to breast cancer that I share out with friends of mine. Um, it's got, and it's nothing special, but you know, it's just kind of our own learnings and takeaways. Um, but you know, I'm on social media. I'm happy to help anybody because I know how important it was for me to have good resources when I was sick and good resources to this day. So I'm happy to talk with anybody who has any questions. Um, and if I can point anybody in the right direction and just make their life a little bit easier as they go through this, then I feel like I will have served my purpose. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. And thank you for all that you're doing. I've recently started following you because my sister turned me on to you. And I I love your talks and just the quick bits of information. You're really um, a breath of fresh air. And, and thank you for all you're doing to help us because this journey would not be as easy unless we had physicians and clinicians like you being open and honest with us and um, helping us through this. So thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Tara Jones. I am so grateful for Tara's honesty and vulnerability in having some of these difficult conversations as it really will help so many other women navigating similar challenges. You can find Tara on Instagram at swite76, S-W-E-I-T-Z 76, or on Facebook at Tara Switzer Jones. And I urge you to reach out to her, to connect with her, uh, especially if something that you heard resonated here. As always, you can find me at Dr. Toplinski on all social media platforms. And if you have a moment to leave a rating or review for the Interlude podcast on Apple, on Spotify, 
it means a great deal to me. It helps me to reach new listeners and to continue to grow the show. Thank you all for being here and I will see you soon. Thank you.